0: You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 30 with Jessica Setnik. Oh, where do I even start with Jessica? She has become a household name in the eating disorder world. She's been working in the field for like 25 years and has her own experience with her eating disorder recovery. This will become apparent when we speak to her, but she envisions this world where no one is ashamed to talk about their eating issues and everyone who wants it has access to help. So how does she do this? She is a speaker and an educator primarily right now. She speaks mostly to health professionals, but also to like everyone, especially through her training workshop, which is called Eating Disorders Bootcamp. She'll talk a little bit more about that in our conversation. And she has her eating disorders pocket guides. She also started a professional organization for eating disorder dietitians through which she advocates for legislation to improve access to care. And you'll hear a little bit more about that as well. Something that I love about this conversation is that although Jessica mostly speaks toward clinicians, whether they're in the field of eating disorders or just wanting to learn more, so many parts of our conversation today are applicable to our everyday life. So for example, when we talk about when someone is coming at you with anger or deliberately wanting to argue, what do you do? How do you do that? Sort of creating this very humanizing approach to treatment, toward ourselves, toward recovery. And I can't wait to share this one with you. So let's just jump right in. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on. Excited too. Yeah. Maybe to start a start us off, can you share a little bit about you, the work that you do, and maybe some cool things that are going on now?
1: Sure. So, I think of myself as an eating disorder specialist. I'm trained as a dietitian. My undergrad was in anthropology, and so I have I think it's somewhat of a different kind of aspect that I bring or angle that I bring to the eating disorder field. I know of two other dietitians who also have degrees in anthropology and they both are eating disorder dietitians as well. So I think it's an interesting kind of blend because anthropology is really the study of humans and cultures on a macro level. And nutrition is really, and especially eating disorder nutrition is really looking at those same things, development on a micro level of the individual. In anthropology, we study the the idea that the things that persist are the things that are beneficial. And so it's really informed my way of looking at eating disorders to think with that anthropology mindset of why are these things persisting and these behaviors persisting if they're not beneficial in some way. So I started as an anthropology major, took nutrition as an elective because I heard it was an easy A, thought it was super (laughs) fascinating what happens when food goes inside your body. And then of course, also the aspect of how do you make the choices you make to get that food inside your body? What are the influences on you? On how that food gets to you in the first place. And even though I think that the psychology of eating really belongs in every aspect of dietetics, which is the study of nutrition, right? In 1994, when I was going through school, really the only area where it was kosher to talk about that psychology of eating was in the eating disorder field. So that's how I, I ended up in the eating disorder field, sort of before I even realized that I had had my own eating disorder and and was in recovery already at the time, but didn't even recognize it as recovery because didn't even recognize it as having had an eating disorder. So once I started in the field as a working person, I got my first job, really a dream job at our local children's hospital, which was just starting an eating disorder program. And so fast forward two years and that eating disorder program had grown enormous and was way too much work for basically a part-time dietitian. So what had started happening is every Tuesday, I would do evaluations for our programs. We had, by that time, we had an inpatient, a partial, day treatment, IOP, and we had a feeding disorder program. And it was just me. I was the one dietitian. And I also was seeing people on an outpatient basis. And I'd gone to my boss and said, this is too much. No one person can do this job. I don't know what to do. And thinking, of course, that they would hire like five more dietitians to do the job, but that's not how hospitals work, right? So she said, and it was good advice. She said, you need to prioritize the most acute patients and the least acute patients you need to send out into the community. So I put together this typed up flyer that had the name of the only two dietitians I knew in the community that would see children with eating disorders and two therapists. And so every Tuesday, we would do an evaluation with the psychiatrist together. And if whoever we were evaluating didn't who really need one of our higher level programs, I would give the parents the flyer and say, these are the outpatient providers to contact. And after doing that 30, 40, 50, 70, however many million times, I realized, wait, why isn't my name on that paperwork? i out <laughs> in the community doing this work, the right amount of work for one human being. And so that's what happened as I started my private practice and they started giving my name out on that piece of paper. And I excuse me, slowly but surely built my private practice. During that time, and this is going to make me sound so old, but during all this time that I'm talking about, the internet was new and there was the internet, but we mostly used it for communication. You couldn't really go out and Google something and find information. So all of the dietitians in the country, the entire American Dietetic Association had one listserv. And so before the listserv happened, what it would be like is, If you are a dietitian in Idaho and you got to work in the morning and saw that in your general hospital, there was a teenager with an eating disorder and you'd have no clue what to do about that. You would have to call 411. This is the olden days, I'm telling you. And you would say, could I please have the name, uh, sorry, the phone number for the hospital in Northern Idaho? And you'd get the number and you'd call and you'd speak to the hospital operator (laughs) as if. (laughs) The nutrition department and then you get the nutrition department secretary and you'd say, is there anyone there that knows anything about eating disorders? And they'd say, no, there isn't. And so you'd hang up and start the whole process again until you could find someone to give you advice. Well, enter the listserv. You could see your census, realize you had a patient with an eating disorder. You had no idea what to do. Type that in to the listserv. And by the time you came back for lunch, someone like me might've answered your question or said, here's my phone number, call me and I can walk you through it. And so it revolutionized the way that we were sharing information about helping people with eating disorders. What it also did is it got my name out there as here's someone who knows what she's talking about. And so that's when I started getting asked to give more presentations. I started my own workshop, Eating Disorders Bootcamp. And so over time, my speaking commitments became sort of out weighed, no pen intended, my ability to do client care. And so I stopped taking on new patients, thinking at some point I would start up taking new patients again. And I never did. At my, over time, I closed my practice. I actually became the spokesperson for a series of different eating disorder hospitals. And and again, you know, the more you speak, the more you become known as a speaker, the more people are in the audience that then become conference planners. And so that's really how I kind of got to the place I am today as being known as a speaker somewhere in there, people would call and say, could you send me another copy of the eating disorders bootcamp manual? Because I refer to that every day or my intern stole it or mine's falling apart, or I carry it with me everywhere. And I thought this is not convenient. This is like a three ring binder. So I had it, I, I sort of, condensed the information and had it made into a small pocket size spiral. And that's how the eating disorders pocket guide came about. So none of this was planned as I think what I'm trying to say is it's sort of one thing flowed to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And then here I am now as certified eating disorder supervisor. And what I do most of the time is sit at home, talk on the phone uh, or video with other dietitians and professionals around the world and help them with their challenging eating disorder situations. And I love it. It uses all my skills. And then speaking is starting to come back. And then I just had, I have it here where I can hold it up. I don't have it printed out, but I just had an article published and I'm not really into publishing articles because I think that the whole research field publication, whatever is a little bit of a crock, but my friend Paula Q does like to publish things. And so we did a survey and we published it. So I have my hand in a lot of pots, whatever I feel like will advance the field. And then the one other thing that I do a lot of is advocacy. And so I don't know if you know this, this is breaking news. The Department of Labor just announced that they have decided that it is against the law, the mental health parity law, for an insurance company to deny someone um, nutrition counseling for their eating disorder. If that insurance company provides nutrition counseling for any condition, they now are required to provide it for eating disorders they cannot discriminate because that violates mental health parity which says anything you provide for a medical condition you have to provide for mental health conditions too
0: well that's incredible i'm a big advocate yeah i'm hoping people can use that and check out their benefits now to uh actually help with reimbursement that's pretty cool just going back for a second, when you said you published an article, what was the survey that you published?
1: It was a survey survey of eating disorder dietitians, or we were trying not to use eating disorder dietitians, because that sounds like something specific. Like, are you a certified eating disorder dietitian? But dietitians working in the eating disorder field, and the questions were, how did you get educated about eating disorders? What's your job satisfaction? What's your caseload like? Things like that. We were trying to get some benchmarks about those things. And we didn't actually get answers to all the questions. It really, I think, opened up more questions than answers, but it's going to be a step on the path toward hopefully getting more education about eating disorders into dietitian school.
0: Yeah. So are you saying that most of the results were inconclusive and just pointing to more questions that need to be asked?
1: Not exactly. There were some conclusions. (laughs) One of the conclusions was that the most Acute patients are being cared for by the most entry level dietitians. So, dietitians are getting out of school and going right into a facility, which is fine if they have training, if they have supervision. But a lot of these dietitians are the only dietitian in, let's say, an addiction facility or something like that. And so, people are getting burnout. They don't have continuing education budgets for eating disorder education, et cetera. And so, I think putting patients at risk and then also leading to high turnover, which affects the cohesiveness of the team. So there were some conclusions, but as far as what to do about it, that's where I think, I think the answers, I'm oh, sorry, the more questions than answers comes up And what are we supposed to do next?
0: Yeah. So enter Jessica and advocacy and we have to have uh, higher budgets for yeah, a dietitians, for clinicians. I mean, come on.
1: Yes, because it because private practice is so much freer and more lucrative. I mean, look at me. Two years into my hospital job, I was probably finally really good at it. Right. I mean, a hospital should want someone to stay at that level, but they'd have to pay me more and they'd have to hire dietitians to work with me. And I'd be asking for a continuing education budget. I will say my fame to claim is that it took five dietitians to replace me. So <laughs> I had myself on the back of being an overworker, but
0: yeah, well, definitely underpaid than five clinicians. So I want to pivot for a little bit just to some of the content of some of your courses and lectures. My understanding, some of it, maybe not all of it, but some of it is geared toward clinicians. So teaching people more of how to treat eating disorders. Is that your clientele for the most part?
1: Yes. It's a health professionals who want to help people with eating disorders or want to do it better. And it's interesting because what I've experienced doesn't make tons of logical sense, but people who are entry level say they get so much out of boot camp. People who've been in the field for 20 years say they get so much out of boot camp. And someone just told me yesterday, I wish I had had this years ago because it would have been so helpful. I learned all these things the hard way, but yet she was so glad she did it because it confirmed for her some of the things that she sort of felt like she was flying by the seat of her pants were actually the okay or the right way to be doing things. So yes, it's health professionals. And when I speak, I occasionally speak to eating disorder professionals now. I feel like, okay, the eating disorder professionals are the ones that are going to invest the 34 hours to take eating disorders boot camp and do the audio and all of that. The, The main audience I'm speaking to is actually primary care professionals, individuals who are not eating disorder specialists. So when I'm live, I'm doing a one hour to extension agents or to general dietitians or to primary care nurses or something like that or school counselors. Someone who is not necessarily an eating disorder specialist or expert, but could really make a difference in changing someone's life when they do encounter someone with an eating disorder.
0: So if you had somebody come to one of your lectures or, I mean, let's put aside the boot camp for a second because that's like an extensive program. They leave with one thing, what is the most important thing? This is like no pressure, but
1: one, the most important thing. The most important thing is that, and you're saying they've already identified someone with an eating disorder, right? Sure. Okay. Then the most important thing is that to that person, the eating disorder is a solution. In your mind, whatever they're doing with their food or not doing with it is a problem. It's so important to look at it on the other side of the coin and say, what problem is this? eating behavior solving for this person. And if we can figure that out, we may be able to get them an appropriate way of solving that problem. So if someone says, well, yeah, I eat this way because I need to feel in control or I eat this way because I need to know people care about me or whatever the case may be, I've never had a patient ever say to me, I eat this way so that I could jump off the roof of this building and fly. I've never had someone who was you know, that grandiose that they were really expecting food and nutrition to do something that wasn't a normal human behavior. It's always, I want to feel loved. I want to feel needed. I want to feel safe. And if we can figure that out and figure out what the root of the problem is, give someone a better solution. A lot of times they won't need their eating disorder behavior anymore. Now that doesn't mean it's not a habit, That doesn't mean it doesn't have a a brain chemistry piece of it that still needs to be addressed. doesn't just fall away, but the best behavioral counseling in the world isn't going to extinguish a behavior that someone is essentially using to make them feel safe or survive. Yeah, I, I usually
0: like to say that this is a precursor. So if we have a consistent meal plan or behavioral interventions, that's great. It's a first step. And then it actually gets the person where they need to go in terms of finding out what function is your eating disorder serving and how can we actually get you what you're looking for?
1: Absolutely. And it can be anything from... You know, it's managing a medical condition that someone has that they don't know that they have to managing a psychiatric condition to keeping post-traumatic stress hallucinations away. I mean, there's real stuff that people are doing. It's not just I want to be skinny because I want to be loved. And I, I although there's plenty of that in society, too but I think that, that it's a mistake to think there's any one path to eating disorders for individuals. So that would be the number one thing I would say is it makes sense. The best way to help someone is to get them on the path that will help with permanent solutions rather than the whole, like just eat a cheeseburger method, or just push away from the table method. Those have never worked for anyone in the history of, time.
0: Exactly. I mean, this, besides for actually opening up the door to potentially solving some real problems, it's much more compassionate and humanizing.
1: I like that approach. I think that that to me is so obvious. And yet I don't always see that in the field. I once remember turning on the TV and seeing some random dude talking on a religious channel about anorexia. And he was saying that like, these people are liars. And I just, I thought, what? And you're a minister, you got a lot of nerve, you know, first of all, these people is so dehumanizing anyway. Right. But it just, so I, I agree with you. I think that compassion may be sometimes lacking in our field, even though we want to believe that everyone becomes a helping professional because they have it. I think it was sort of shocking to me to realize that going to counseling school or nutrition school doesn't actually make you a kind person or even a good eater, right? If you're a, you know, bitchy, judgy person, then you just become a bitchy, judgy doctor, or bitchy, judgy counselor. Yeah, I've met, I've
0: um, met a few of those, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah,
1: hopefully not most. Hopefully those are the exceptions. But yes, I agree with you that it's so important to keep in our minds that no matter what we feel discouraged or whatever by client interaction, that person has to live with that discouragement 24 hours a day. So if nothing else... We should have compassion just for how challenging it is to get through the day with whatever obstacles they're facing.
0: Yeah. And especially when, you know, I like to see if, let's say I'm feeling frustrated or anything when I'm with a client, my question is, how is this clinically significant? So if you're saying that this is potentially something that they're living with, then how can I tap into what I'm feeling right now and try to understand where they're coming from? Or how is our interaction making this happen? So again, like using this clinically is so important.
1: I believe that as a therapist in your field, you are trained so much more in, in looking at that and understanding it. For us as dietitians, counter-transference is never even said as a word. There's like, you might say that counter and you might say, I'm going to transfer to a different college, <laughs> but those words are never used together. And so- I am often counseling dietitians or coaching dietitians or supervising whatever word you prefer to use about countertransference and how it's a thing. And just recently a dietitian said in a supervision group, and I was I was glad she was able to say it because of course that's already takes 90% of the shame out of it. She said, I feel guilty for all the countertransference I have. And I said, I'm not gonna solve countertransference for you. I'm gonna tell you though, you can get the guilt part out of it unless you are literally like hit on the brick hit on the head, sorry, with a brick amnesia you are bringing yourself into a session and that's not a bad thing. The key is figuring out what is your stuff versus what is your client's stuff and then handling your stuff outside of the session. But I'm so glad you mentioned that because yes, we don't know enough about eating disorders to even know what causes them, to know how to cure them. We have to rely on sort of our spidey sense or divine inspiration or whatever you want to call it. And that does come from the interactions and from our experiences. It's not you're guessing. But sometimes I think it feels like guessing. Really what it is, is clinical judgment that goes so fast through your brain cells or your neurons that you don't realize that you're putting all these pieces together. And so I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, absolutely. What's going on for you may be a reflection of what's going on for a client, but I think that's really new information for a lot of people who are not therapists.
0: I mean, that's true. Even for therapists, it's so hard to put your, I guess, for lack of a better term, to put your ego at the door, especially when there's a client who comes in angry. That happens a fair share. If they're angry at me or at the person who's the clinician, I mean, that is like a really tough pill to swallow.
1: Yes. And, you know, one of the best things that I got from all those. Evaluations with the psychiatrist that I worked with in the children's hospital was his amazing ability to reframe all that. You know, when someone would say something like, I can't believe it. I can't believe you're going to be the reason that my kid can't play soccer in college. And he would say, I know it's really unfortunate that anorexia is keeping your kid from playing soccer. He was so good at not taking that on and saying, you know, it was his way of saying, I'm not the enemy here. The problem is the eating disorder. I am giving you a recommendation. And I heard him say multiple times, it seems that you aren't interested in my advice or recommendation. So for that reason, I should no longer be your doctor. And he would just say that so simply. I just learned so much from watching him not take on other people's stuff or anger or feelings. And and it wasn't in a dismissive way either. It was just simply yeah, here's how I see it. I, I agree with you. This is a stinky situation, but he wasn't willing to take on the feelings as his fault.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a, a goal. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely hard to well, do. I don't know
1: what he did when he left. He might've gone home and cried, you know, about how his feelings were hurt. So who knows? But he, yes, handled but it he also was able
0: to, in the moment, share these things with an even voice and with, logic. I think so often, you know, I'll speak for myself and I feel attacked, my brain goes blank. So e, being able to put words together and in a way that doesn't reflect my anger or hurt is very difficult and takes a lot of work, therapy, supervision, group supervision. I mean, like all the things. And so even if he did go home and cry, I would still say that that's a huge win.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I feel like it comes with practice, right? You end up with these sound bites of things that you say over and over and over again. And and anyone listening to this who's been to therapy or multiple therapists has probably heard some of those same sound bites over and over and over again. And I think it's great that we have those sound bites because they do help us detach from the emotion we're feeling in the moment and get back in our wise mind. I mean, it's not appropriate for anyone to be abused, right? I mean, it's appropriate to say things like, I'm gonna step out and give you a minute to gather your thoughts. But sometimes you have to observe someone doing that to realize that that's okay, as opposed to nobody talks to me like this in my office. You know, it's not a retaliation situation. But I hear what you're saying that when your your fight, flight, or freeze kicks in, that's not your intellectual best at coming back with a thought. And a lot of times, I think of it like a fight with your spouse or your significant other. I was or just thinking that, later, yeah. Yeah. And then you just use it next time, right?
0: Yeah. Or anybody, whenever you get into some sort of argument, this is a great way if you can to sort of understand this. Okay. This person is getting angry. It might be something that I said or did. It's probably something that I said or did in connection with how they responded to it. And so let's try to understand why.
1: That is a great point. And I think of it in my mind as, here's me and here's you. And there's nothing wrong with either one of us, but the interaction, the Venn diagram, the place where we come together has gotten sort of fouled up. And I'm thinking of a situation that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, except that I was at the IRS, which is a totally authoritarian. It's like going to the principal's office. Oh yeah, for sure.
0: I'm going to take your money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. My blood pressure was rising. And then the woman across from me said, well, this is what you did wrong. And I I don't remember what words came out of my mouth because I was seeing red, but whatever I said must have, I don't know if I rose from my seat or what exactly happened, but this woman must have been very skilled at conflict resolution or trained to the hilt because she said, okay, let's start over. Mistakes were made (laughs) because those words, this is what you did wrong. I mean, I'm not going to the big house. Okay. I did not do anything wrong. (laughs) Just completely. I, I was not, I mean, wise mind. What is that? And so it's that kind of thing where I, if we remember that the person in front of us is having feelings too, and is also not in their wise mind place, but in a sense to me as the professional, it's our job to not judge them for that. Because let's face it, if I was the person whose kid had an eating disorder, I would be up in your jock with all my articles that I printed out off the internet. Heck yeah, I'd be the thorn in your side calling every day to find out what the treatment plan is. So if we can look at it like that and and stay, you know, sort of have compassion again, that word for what someone else is going through, it can really help us be able to stay calmer because we know it's not personal. It's not personal. It's not personal. And I will tell you one other story about Dr. Waller, because this is just the classic Dr. Waller staying calm in an adversity moment. We had it patient that we were doing. She was not our patient yet. We were doing an evaluation and the parents were there and the young child was there. And during the conversation, the child did something I've yet never seen repeated, which is that she crawled onto one of the end tables in the room and turned her face to the corner on all fours and started howling like a coyote howling at the moon. Never saw anything like that before the parents must have perhaps seen this before because they didn't seem very alarmed by it. They looked at us and said, yeah, sorry about that. I bet you don't see that every day. And Dr. Waller said, oh yeah, we see that all the time. And I was like, internally, like, why are you lying? Dr. Waller, we have definitely never seen this before. What are you (laughs) talking about? But it was just his way of saying, you know what? That's why you're here. You're here because there is a problem. And we'll figure out if we have anything we can offer that can help you solve it. And he was just unflappable. And so I do try to channel that sometimes. And sometimes it helps me to just picture him as my avatar or my persona in my mind. Of I don't think it's conscious what would Dr. Waller do in this situation. It's more like, what would I do if I wasn't having any emotions about this situation? How would I respond? What is my, almost like my, my scariest psych nurse, calm voice. And I think about, did you see girl interrupted? And Angelina Jolie, she takes the pen and she holds it up to her neck. And she says to Whoopi Goldberg, who is the nurse, if you take one step closer, I'm going to stab this pen into my aorta. And Whoopi Goldberg just looks at her and says, your aorta is in your chest. And Angelina Jolie says, good to know. And it just defuses it, right? (laughs) The more we engage with someone's drama, the more they engage with their own drama. And so I think it's so important to help them defuse. And okay, one more thing on this topic that I'll say is just simply that one of the things that as professionals, I don't think we think of as part of our job, but we do it every single day is role modeling. And so staying calm in the face of someone's distress and staying supportive, not just calm, but supportive in the face of their distress helps them not be as ashamed of their distress and helps that person. I know that's true of me going to my own therapy when I would sit and cry and think, oh my God, my therapist is just going to fire me because all I do is sit here and cry or something like that. And the fact that that my therapist could tolerate that helped me realize, okay, maybe crying is not quite the shameful thing that I imagine that it is
0: yeah which is really powerful agreed
1: so something that I'm curious about which is
0: not entirely related to this piece but is the idea of the origins of the relationship with food I mean we talked about it being a solution instead of a problem becomes a problem but actually a solution and you talk about a few different ways to conceptualize this or to sort of like go from there and I'm curious if you can speak to that
1: Sure. Absolutely. So we've said that the origin of the eating disorder is crucial to getting it solved. And as you said, sometimes we have crisis management that we have to put in place, which is adequate eating, adequate rest, medication, possibly we get those crisis management things in place. And then we have sort of the seven year course of figuring out what's behind everything. And so to me, there are four main paths and There are people who say you shouldn't even care about what the paths are. You should just let that go. I'm not one of those people. I hear people say a lot, well, these things happened so long ago, they're not affecting me anymore. My take is the longer ago it happened, the more it is affecting you because the younger you were when it happened, the fewer coping skills you had to interpret it or rebound from it when it happened. And the more of your life you've lived sort of repeating or telling yourself that same story. So the origin in some cases is absolutely biological. And the perfect example of this I can think of is a patient who came to see me because she was feeling really compelled, pressure to eat. And the example she gave was she could be in line to pick up her kids at carpool and just get this overwhelming need to eat. She would pull out of the carpool line, go through a drive through even though knowing that was going to make her late to pick up her kids, which one of her values was not being late to pick up her kids. So she couldn't understand why she would do that behavior She was sent to me for an evaluation for binge eating disorder. But after she reported some of the symptoms she was having that, you know, a typical dietitian will ask about, you know, menstrual cycles and different physical things, she was sweating, all kinds of different things that just did not sound hormonally appropriate to me or like a balanced medical stability situation. I recommended that she see an endocrinologist. Didn't ever hear back from her for a few weeks. And then about a month later, She called, asked to speak with me, said that I had saved her life, which I didn't understand because I had not even given her a single nutrition recommendation. And she said, well, I went to that endocrinologist you told me about. He diagnosed me with a tumor on my blank gland. I'm not going to say the right one because I don't remember. And I had surgery, it was removed, and I don't have that compulsion to eat at random times anymore. So that is just one of many, many, many examples where we can look at something as behavioral and not realize, we just don't give enough credit to what's going on inside the body. Hypothyroidism, depression, anxiety, all of those are physiological issues that can affect someone's eating, right? So that is one of the paths. Concussion. Oh my gosh, the people who study concussions have known for a long time that concussions can cause eating disorders. For some reason, the eating disorder community is very late to the game and picking up on this because we have the unfortunate sort of precedent that eating disorders are all psychological manifestations of whatever. And so we sometimes miss that sometimes there is a physical component. So that's one aspect is the physiological or biologically based. There's also a lot of DNA stuff coming out. So there's a lot there. The second path is an addiction path. So when someone has, let's say, used a mood-altering chemical and tries to stop using it, a lot of times... They don't realize, or we as a society don't really recognize that food is a mood-altering chemical and can sometimes be involved in that switching of addictions. And if anyone here has never been hangry, let me just describe hangry is when you start snapping at people because you haven't had enough to eat, then you eat something and you suddenly feel better. I mean, it's the easiest example of food as a mood altering chemical, but we're not generally eating to feel high. Usually we're eating to get back to baseline. And so when someone has modified their brain chemistry with addiction, Sometimes food may affect them differently. I'm not talking about being addicted to food because I feel like that has a lot of meanings that are not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the interplay between addictions and food. And so you can become addicted to certain behaviors. People go through withdrawals when they stop throwing up or other things because those are mood-altering behaviors.
0: What sort of withdrawals have you experienced, Have you um, seen?
1: So when someone stops throwing up, they can get sweaty and shaky when they eat there's all kinds of physical aspects to throwing up that release endorphins. And so someone can start to feel depressed when they're not doing it anymore. Those would be some of the main withdrawal symptoms I'm thinking of. Also, there can be digestive problems if food hasn't been passing through normally. So there's a lot of ways that addictions and eating disorder symptoms can be related. I think that exercise is one of the sort of maybe more obvious ones that someone is often using exercise on a, in an inappropriate way or an excessive way to manage their anxiety because exercise is a mood altering chemical too, right? So it's not that any of these behaviors are wrong. It's the fact that they're being used to a degree that is no longer helpful or positive or productive in someone's life. So there's a a lot of addiction paths to eating disorders too. Then there's also stress and trauma related eating disorders. So coming from something stressful, which again, changes brain chemistry, there's Trauma and stress related eating disorders that are not related to food. And then there are ones that are related to food. So, for example, food insecurity, not having enough money for food or not having access to food can lead to eating problems, as well as the trauma of, for example, sitting on your roof during Hurricane Katrina, wondering if anyone's going to rescue you for three days and not having any food to eat. I mean, those things can be very long lasting. The experience of being incarcerated and having no control over your food. When stress and trauma is directly related to food, it can be really hard to untangle, but also things that are not related to food at all that are traumatic and stressful absolutely can impact our relationship with food for a variety of different reasons. And then the last pathway is learned behavior. I think that's where diet culture fits in. I think that's where your microcosm, your microculture, as far as the peer pressure, what other people are doing in your family, in your home, among your caregivers, among your peers, at your school, things like being weighed for a sport. Those are all learned sort of environmental type of things that can cause dysfunctional eating. So there's lots of different paths. And I think that a lot of things we still don't know that are paths to eating disorders. So it's not that we can solve them all, but what we're trying to do in talking about it is take away the shame that people feel about I caused this or I caused this in my child. That's not how it works at all. So in terms of the four main paths that you described, is it mostly that somebody would fall under one of those categories or is it a combination of all of them? There's often a combination, right? So let's just say someone has hypothyroidism and then they eat more and they gain weight and then diet culture says you need to lose weight. So they start cutting back and then they develop an under eating problem. And so then they start binge eating and, you know, so it can be a whole interplay that ends up being like a tangled up knot of yarn. But there's usually, in my experience, and I'm open to the fact that there are exceptions to everything, something that started it. So, for example, if you have someone who's now throwing up their food and you say, well, if you stopped throwing up your food, I'm sorry, if you stopped overeating, then you wouldn't throw up your food. And if you stopped undereating, then you would stop overeating. We still haven't gotten to the bottom of it, which is the hypothyroidism, right? So, that's why I'm saying you have to get all the way back to the original. Pathway, even if you've diverted onto other pathways somewhere in between.
0: So, going back to the original point that you had made, eating disorders are a solution, not a problem. Is this what
1: you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. That we look at the eating behaviors as the problem when really they're the end point. The eating behavior is the thing that someone is using to solve the problem, whether the problem is traumatized brain chemistry or whether the problem is staying on the cheerleading team or whether the problem is hypothyroidism, that's exactly what I mean, that we need to look at the eating disorder as the outcome, the symptom, rather than that the problem is bulimia and the symptom is throwing up. No, that's not correct.
0: It's interesting because you use the same vocabulary as clinicians who are trained analytically. The answer to that question is usually the last two paths that you described, more so like the trauma and the past experiences And the, I guess, the societal piece. So the first two are sort of like new add-ons.
1: I think that it can be really tempting and alluring to think that there is a psychological basis for everything. And yes, in some ways there is because everything that we experience goes through our brain as is interpreted by our brain. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't something medical or physical that came first.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think that whenever we think about things in a vacuum, it sort of blinds us to the larger picture. So, of course, we have to look at everything. And I think the point is that we can't look at the biological piece on its own. We can't look at the psychological piece on its own. They're all important.
1: Oh, except that the people who like to only look at them on their own and deny that the other parts even exist. It's no, no one's trying to take away your PhD by showing that there might be another pathway to an eating disorder, right? But sometimes people respond in that way that somehow there being another possibility somehow makes everything that they've said wrong. And I'm thinking of, unfortunately, a well known eating disorder professional that I went to hear. She spoke at my high school. And I just wanted to hear the talk, my high school, when I was already an adult in the field, back at my high school. And I remember her saying that eating disorders are a disease of affluence. And I just thought, oh, oh God, no, 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 no. And I mean, I had to sit on my hands until the Q&A session. And at that point I stood up and I said, I'd like to just reframe something that you said, because we've worked really hard in our community to help people understand that eating disorders really don't know boundaries like that. And she doubled down. She said, well, the research shows that blah, blah, blah. I mean, maybe I should repeat it just because it's so wrong. I mean, I hate to repeat something so biased, but she said, well, you know, laxatives are very expensive. And I just thought, has she never heard of shoplifting and also throwing up his free, like I just had so many rebuttals and I just kept it to myself. And she literally said, research shows that as African-American families rise in socioeconomic status. They have more eating disorders. And I thought you are a smart person who teaches at, and I will leave out the name of Ivy league college. You believe that the people who get treatment, who can afford treatment are representative. Like you can take the people who are coming to you at Ivy league college to get treatment from you and extrapolate that into the entire population of individuals with eating disorders. I mean, that doesn't even make logical sense. And yet here's the person who's standing on the stage viewing that kind of thing. So for some reason, you know, I have to think that that person has some book out or some ego-driven idea that the idea that eating disorders can affect anyone who eats somehow feels like that's pulling down her thesis topic or something. And it's so unfortunate. We need to really be able to step outside of whatever we learned in school and look at what reality is telling us.
0: And also, even if that were to be something that you'd believe in, if somebody comes in and provides a rebuttal that makes sense for us as humans to step down and, you know, sort of join in the conversation and say, well, you know, that makes sense. It challenges what I've just said and maybe I'm wrong. Let me maybe admit that I'm wrong.
1: I love that. I'm going to say that next time someone challenges me when I give a talk, I'm going to say, that makes sense. It challenges what I just said, but I'd like to hear more about that. Can we talk after the presentation? Yes. That is what a mature, non-ego driven person would say. And I'm going to, to aspire to be that person.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is very difficult because a lot of people come to the conversation ready to argue and they're not willing to hear and i think that this happens i mean on social media for sure especially when it's much more anonymous and people are sort of biting at each other there's like the diet culture and there's the anti-diet culture and they're just sort of biting at each other and there is a a subset of people that are actually interested in learning more but for the most part these arguments happen when people are not interested in getting at the truth they just want to be right And so if the person you're noticing, they just want to be right, like I would just leave the conversation. Like there's nothing that's going to happen here.
1: Well, I learned this a long time before social media because my brother is a really mean lawyer. (laughs) He can argue either side of a situation and make you just want to cry and just not want to be part of it. He could argue that the sky is made out of green cheese. I don't know. He could argue anything and you will just hate life so much and just want to be anywhere besides in this conversation. And I learned that. I mean, my brother has only been a lawyer since he was in his 20s, but he, he had the same debating skills when he was five years old. I've learned not to enter a conversation like that because it's not enjoyable for me. But I've observed my brother being in conversations and he loves that. And my friend Neva has the best saying about internet trolls. She won't say, well, there's a four letter word, but I'll just use the word mud for it. She says, you never want to get down and roll in the mud with pigs because you get all muddy and the pig is having the time of their life. Oh, and I like I'm that. I'm not saying anyone's individual is a pig, right? But they're enjoying it. People enjoy that stuff. They enjoy getting your goat. And if you don't enjoy getting your goat gotten, then you need to exit the situation because that person's never going to give in. They're having a great time getting covered in mud. Yeah.
0: On this topic, I'm curious if you have some information about research just in general, because I think that coming at it from any side, I can say, well, the research shows. And obviously, if there's so much research that's contradicting each other, then there's got to be someone that's missing something. So I'm curious if you can share a little bit more on that.
1: Or they can both be right. It doesn't have to be that someone's missing something. It can be that both sides are right, but looking at something from a different angle. And the best assignment I ever had in all of my undergrad training was in a nutrition class. The teacher was Irene Berman Levine. It was a small seminar class. She gave us each student two articles. My articles were on babies can drink milk from six months old forward And the other one said babies should never drink milk until at least 12 months of age. She gave each of us two articles, research articles that showed different findings. And we had to present to the class why we thought two articles could have studied the same thing or two studies could have studied the same thing and came up with different answers. And it was so helpful in informing the way I look at research. I always go back to the original article. I never read the headline in the New York Times and Say, oh, now I know what that article was about because 89% of the time, it's never about what the headline is about. And so, yes, research related to eating disorders is very much in its infancy. I mean, there's research out there that says participating in a knitting group is good for your eating disorder. Anything it is published because in some cases there might be facts behind it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, globalizable, right? If your n was 14 or I remember reading an article that said something like patients participated in a neuro blah, blah, blah activity after meals and it helped with their anxiety and their urge to purge or something like that. So I went back to the original article to find out what neuro blank, blank, blank activities are. Well, you know what they did? They played Tetris after meals. Like why <laughs> could you just say that? Distractions help. Right? I can summarize that in two words. Distractions help. Okay. So, you know, stuff like that, it's very questionable. But more than that, it's really important to recognize that all the way back at the beginning of our field of eating disorders, which honestly is not that far back because it's not a very old field, but there's so much bias baked into our field racial bias, size bias, gender bias. For the first 20, 30, 40 years of our field. The only people who were studied were white, affluent, underweight, cis, hetero presenting women. The end. that was it. And so results are certainly not generalizable, even to all white, cis, hetero women, much less all individuals with eating disorders. But yet all the research base is based on that. I mean, Once you have the biased research, then you have biased education of professionals who then have biased diagnosing because they don't even see eating disorders in populations that haven't been studied because... It doesn't even occur to, let's say, a pediatrician that a young man who's losing weight might have an eating disorder, even if they were on top of things enough to notice that a young woman losing weight might have an eating disorder, which a lot of times they're not, right? Because depending on what size that young woman started at, they might just praise them for weight loss. But young men would be tested for celiac disease, for IBD, for HIV, before anyone would think maybe this is an eating disorder. It's only a very recent development that men have been included in any research and it's still very little. And the same thing with anyone who is of any race, you know, besides white, anyone who's of any gender besides female. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how much this research bias has then been cooked into treatment. I mean, the idea that if you are not a woman, it's very hard to even find treatment for an eating disorder. It's just a big old mess. And so research has really been skewed. So I think there's a lot of room for people who want to do research. Uh, That would be absolutely great. But for now, the, the most important take home about research is to keep in mind that the person in front of you and their experience is a thousand times more important than anything you could read in research.
0: Let's say I was gonna read some research, especially like diet culture versus anti-diet culture. This obviously speaks to different angles because I'm sure we can prove something if we look at it from any angle. But if let's say I was looking at some research, I don't know, I'm interested in it. What would you suggest to help me look at it with a critical mind as opposed to just being like,
1: oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I would say number one, know that we're all part of the soup, right? We're all part of diet culture. So in other words, some of the things won't seem obvious, right? Like if someone did some terrible research, you want to think like, oh, we'll just be obvious or, oh, it would never even be published in a journal. No, not correct. So the things you would want to look for are what is the sort of the wording that someone is using to describe someone who, let's say, is larger. Do they say fat? Do they say living in a larger body? Do they say heavy? Do they say above you know, biologically appropriate weight? Or do they say, use words like obese and obesity that are kind of considered passe because they're considered sort of boxes to put people in. So right there, you kind of know what angle someone's coming at. Of course, also look at, at where someone works and how they're funded. Because if the funding for a study comes from, let's say uh, the maker of a, a weight loss drug, then it's a nice idea to think that researchers are so unbiased, but. It's very challenging to figure out why a researcher who's totally unbiased would take money from someone. Usually, the research is not just funded by a corporate interest. It's actually prompted by a corporate interest. And they find researchers who are doing research on the things that they want to find already. So it's a real problem. I just saw something the other day that said maternal BMI does not affect weight status in Teenagers. So, in other words, if a pregnant woman is of a large size, larger than what our society determines is acceptable, that doesn't mean that that woman's children, when they grow up, will be larger. So, that's great. Okay. We can stop telling women who are pregnant that if you're above a certain BMI, you shouldn't gain any weight. That's an actual recommendation that, you know, one of the academies put out that if you're, you know, you shouldn't gain any weight if you're already big. Well, that's ridiculous. So I don't even know why a person with any professional experience would repeat those words as a recommendation, but there it is. So I'm thinking, okay, this is great. If you can take away the fear that someone's weight when they're pregnant is going to affect their child's weight, then let's just stop making weight recommendations. No, at the end of the article, they said, so therefore, we've ruled this out as a factor, but we should still make people lose weight for other reasons. Like the whole point of the <laughs> article was misproven, and yet they still insist that people should lose weight. Why? Just because that's a belief that they already had, that they already brought in with them. So it's really the myth of objectivity, the idea that that any of this research is sort of created with just from a blank slate.
0: Yeah. Well, well, those are really good ones. I think that it's so easy to read just the abstract or the conclusion or what somebody else has posted about the article. And when you actually delve into it, which is tedious, but when you actually delve into it, then you can make your own conclusions.
1: Agreed. And I feel like that's one of the things that when I'm asked to review articles, I'm really strict about where did you come up with this? You know, where did you come up with this conclusion? Where did you come up with this citation? They'll say something like many sources say blah, blah, blah. And then they'll have one citation. Well, you can't say many sources if you only have one citation. I am a really, really tough editor. And I think that's maybe why I get so many requests to review because part of me thinks they're never going to ask me again. But I think it's the opposite. I think the editors appreciate having someone who really cares. And sometimes I think, why, why do I do this? This is just, you know, Donated work and it's frustrating and it makes me mad. And usually, I don't know if you've done any reviews, but for people listening, you may not realize that as a reviewer, you don't usually get to hear what other reviewers have said. And one time I reviewed an article and the first line I already objected to it said, The main goal of anorexia treatment is weight restoration. And I struck it and I said, No, the main goal of anorexia treatment is for someone to eat adequately to sustain life. Right. Cause that is the maybe they said the ultimate goal. I was like, the ultimate goal is not weight restoration. That is a very early goal, if anything. And so I gave my whole like 17 point criticism throughout the whole article. And, and then when I, when the, Authors replied, they replied to both editor or both reviewers together. So I was able to see what the other reviewer said. The reviewer had one comment. It said, You forgot to mention potassium. And I thought, well, there you go. That's why I do this because nobody else is catching the things that I catch. So whew. but yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of research. I think that it's it's very biased and very tainted. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep doing it. I'm just saying we should look with a wary eye at what is already out there.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we obviously can continue this all day, but just in the interest of time, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise and for your knowledge and your stories. Before I let you go, can you just share with us where we can find you?
1: Oh, yes, of course. So I have a website that sort of umbrellas everything, which is jessicasetnik.com, just my name. And then for any professionals listening, eatingdisordersbootcamp.com is out there and, um, those are the main ways, but you can always, Jessica Setnick is not a really common name. So if you want to see any of my presentations, any of the videos that are online, you can find them all at jessicasetnick.com or just type in Jessica Setnick in any of your favorite search engines. And I bet you will find at least a video or or uh, <laughs> some handouts of mine, but I'm, I'm not hard to find. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was really fun talking with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.